Let's pray as we approach the Word of God, shall we? Our great and gracious God, we do not deserve to have the Word of God written down in a language that we can understand. But here it is, and here we are. So I pray that you'd open our hearts to see wonderful things in your law. Let our minds be receptive to what you have to say to us. Guard our hearts that we might have a passion to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It is sometimes overlooked that Jesus was a prophet. We focus on Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King, and well, we should, but he, did, he was a prophet in that he spoke forth the word of God, as the prophets of old did, but he also made predictions, and Jesus made some predictions regarding the, the future end times that are yet to come, as well as the end times of his own life. To give you an idea of how hard and how challenging this is, I have a few prophetic type of statements, some predictive statements that were made in our country from time to time over the years. Some of them came to pass just as they were predicted, and some of them were far-fetched and never occurred in reality. So here we go. In 1903, a bank tried to talk Henry Ford out of his emphasis on cars. They said this to him, the horse is here to stay, but the novelty, or excuse me, the automobile is a novelty, it's a fad. Five years later, he was producing cars. In 1911, Thomas Edison, who was a very smart guy and uh, invented a whole lot of things, predicted that steel would be used for virtually everything. Here's his quote, the baby of the 21st century will be, will be rocked in a steel cradle. Hard to imagine that. His father will sit in a steel chair and the family will have a steel dining table and the house will be equipped with steel furnishings. Well, there you go, 1911. Here's more recently, Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, he said this in 2007, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to have any significant market share. No chance at all. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that was wrong. Okay, I guess you got that. Here's some that were uh, correct and fairly crazy at the time. Credit cards were predicted in the year 1888. Credit cards began in the year 1950. Oh, somebody was ahead of their time. Mark Twain kind of, sort of predicted the internet in 1898. He called it a, if I'm going to say this, I'm going to say it wrong, a tele-electroscope, tele-electroscope. They used the phone system to create a worldwide network for sharing information. The internet is uh, suggested to have begun in the year 1993, so 95 years after Mark Twain said that. In 1909, he's a very smart engineer by the name of Tesla, no relation to the car, predicted that someday people would be walking around with a phone in their pocket. Well, the first cell phone was, was released in 1973, but that weighed four and a half pounds. Cell phones really hit the market in 1983. In 1968, an author published a novel in which he described news pads. The description accurately matches what we call iPads today, and those were, those were released in 2010. Okay, so a lot of predictions, some were right and some were wrong. 
Imagine being able to predict your life with great accuracy. I had not a clue when I came here uh, that uh, my first day as senior pastor would be 20 years to the date my last year, my last day of senior pastor. August 4, 20 years apart. Had no clue at all. But Jesus, you look at Jesus and he would, um, not would, he did predict the end of his life and he did so by naming uh, his life coming to, the, to an end through the hands of another. He gave us the date, the time, the place, the, lo- uh, the reason, and even how his life would come to an end. Jesus predicted his life with the end of his life with some very specific detail. We might be able to have a hunch or get a few things right. Jesus, as we're going to see today in the Sundays to come, he had incredible precision when it came to predicting the end of his life. And then he also added, I will resurrect and I will ascend. He added those as well. This morning, we're going to look at two predictions that Jesus made. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. And he added to the betrayal of Judas this um, idea of he's going to share bread with me. And he added to the denial of Peter, this will happen in connection with the, the rooster giving the morning call. Now, we call those predictions, really they are prophetic. And according to the terms of Deuteronomy chapter 18, If Jesus comes along and he makes such a prediction or a prophecy and he is wrong, he is deserving to be stoned. These are not just guesses that are thrown out there in the willy-nilly of the night. These are predictive elements that Jesus gave us to securely understand who he is and what it is that God had called him to do. Here's what's at stake. Can Jesus, I'm going to give this to you in the form of a question for us just to consider as it applies to our lives. Can Jesus make choices that will survive the very worst of humanity? Or will the choices of Jesus crumble and fall when the heat gets turned up? That's something we really want to know because Jesus chose you. My aim this morning is to show you that Jesus can be trusted to save those he has chosen and to keep those he has saved without regard to the circumstances or your personal feelings about it. I would wager a guess that everyone in this room has been let down at some point by a broken promise, a failed commitment, or some type of best efforts come up short. Jesus will hold on to you, and he will never fail. Isn't that good to know? John has made it clear, Jesus has made a choice. Let's turn to the Gospel of John chapter 13, if you are not there already. Gospel of John chapter 13. As we continue on, and we learned last week that John 13 through 17 is one long conversation. It takes place on Thursday of Holy Week. Some of you call it Passion Week. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is giving final instructions to his apostles. And in this, uh, 
In the second half of John 13, we find these predictive elements with regard to Judas and Peter. I'm not going to read the whole thing at once, but let's start reading a few verses at a time. John 13, verse 18, Jesus said this, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss as to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, well, I'm just going to stop there with verse 22. So his disciples are somewhat confused trying to process this information. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean about the betrayal? We might have heard that before, but one of us? I know those who have chosen Jesus start, started, uh, we started this passage with Jesus saying, I know those whom I have chosen. Let's turn back right now before we really get into John 13 to John chapter 6, the very end of John chapter 6. Look at verse 70 and 71, speaking of Jesus and those he has chosen. I want to show you a corollary passage, John chapter 6, verse 70 which takes place about a year and a half earlier to what we just read in John 13. So John 70, picking it up right there in the middle of a conversation, Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Pretty clear, Jesus chose the twelve apostles. And then he says here, And yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, thought, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. So Jesus was fully aware of the outcome when he did the choosing. In other words, Jesus makes his predictions based on his chosen, based on his choices. Jesus predicts so clearly and so accurately because he understands his choices. This is not a situation where... Um, Things were random and the events sort of spiraled out of control and Judas accidentally did his thing. Jesus chose Judas for this purpose. And he knew it all along. What the disciples experienced was someone on their team, Team Jesus, 12 apostles, and now they're being told that one of them will betray At some point, the 11 who choose to be faithful might have asked themselves, if that happens to one of our own, are we safe? Knowing the betrayal is coming, knowing the betrayer is in their midst, knowing the remaining number of apostles are about to witness the horrific ordeal of betrayal, arrest, beating, and crucifixion. Knowing all of that, Jesus gives them a gift. The demonstration of the sovereignty 
of God. Even in the selection of the 12, Jesus is still in charge. There are distinctions that can be made. Personalities are different. But no one has imposed these men upon Jesus. He freely chose. His call, he made the decision, and yes, he did pray about it. Prayed all night before he selected the apostles. That type of choice, that type of selection is consistent with the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. God chooses. And God is able to save those he chooses. Jesus is able to hold on to those he saves. The Apostle Paul is a leader in our church, and very often when I I read through the Gospels, I like to respond by trying to understand, is there is there, do we have any information as to what the leaders of the early church did with this information? So when I look at the Great Commission, I want to understand the Great Commission by looking at what the apostles did with the Great Commission shortly after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Is there anything in the, in the, in the, um, the writings of the early church that can somehow shed light on the sovereignty of God and his ability to choose? And I think we have exactly that. The Apostle Paul was a leader in the early church. And he wrote this in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery of noble purposes and some for common use? So you look at Jesus, and out of the same batch of apostles, he chose 12 out of that same batch of apostles, 11 are chosen for noble purposes, and one is not. And that's okay because it's Jesus' call. What we have encountered here in John chapter 13 is something more than a simple sentence, but I'm going to try anyway to give it to you in a simple sentence. uh, Judas was chosen to be an apostle, but he was not chosen for salvation. Now on the surface, it looks as if this entire conversation might not seem all that helpful to the to the apostles. Hey, one of you is going to betray, and by the way, another one of you is going to deny. We haven't gotten to the not denial part, but yes, it is Peter. We know that. One, so Jesus gathers them together amongst the last things I have to say to you. You need to know this. One will betray me, and in betraying Jesus, he betrays them all, and one of you will deny. How does that help? Jesus chose the twelve. And yet there's going to be some serious problems amongst the 12 to come. Again, I'll try to explain this, but as limited as I am, my weaknesses. Here we go. Let's just jump in. Jesus did not choose poorly. He chose apostles for God's purposes. Eleven to take the gospel to the world. One to betray. And if you think about it, somebody has to set the motion uh, Set in, set in, in motion the, the events that, that lead up to the arrest and the betrayal and, the, and the, um, the beatings and the crucifixion. Somebody has to get that started. It's going to be Judas, chosen by Jesus, who gets that started. Okay, application. How does all of this help us right now? I'm not just talking historical realities here. How does this help us? Today, when it looks like the cause of Christ is losing... When it looks like your best efforts amount to nothing. Today, when it looks like the church is dying, when it looks like Satan is thriving, 
When it looks like the world is winning, when it looks like your faith is failing, you need a clear and biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God as to how he relates to you and your life. When you see resistance to Jesus, know that the sovereignty of God causes, allows that resistance to Jesus to occur. When you see our defeated enemy, the devil, apparently doing well, it will help you to know that God is sovereign over the activity of our defeated enemy, the devil. When you feel as if your faith is drowning in a sea of discouragement and, it, and, and the circumstances of life just don't seem to make sense to you, please know that Jesus is able to keep all he saves. Jesus will never let go of you. As we read on, we'll see that the, um, the bread that Jesus gives to Judas identifies him as the betrayer. Let's pick it up with verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and asked him, and said to him, ask, ask him which one this means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Wow. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus, excuse me, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Well, we know from John chapter 18 that Judas led a cohort of Jewish religious leaders and Roman soldiers to the location of Jesus Christ, but there's more. We started with verse 18, and I want to point out something here. If you have a uh, paper Bible, you might have this verse in quotes with a little tiny letter. I haven't seen this yet in, in an electronic Bible, but maybe, maybe it's there. I, I don't read a whole lot of Bibles electronically. But the second half of verse 18, do you see this sentence in quotes? He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And then there's a little letter there. That's a cross reference. So I go down to the bottom of the page and I find a cross reference. says Psalm 41, verse 9. So I went back and I read Psalm 41 a few times to try to understand it. Turns out it seems like there's a lot of correlation to what David is experiencing in the circumstances that he encounters in, when, in the writing of Psalm 41, as well as the circumstances of, of Jesus. Keep in mind, again, we're going to see a thread of, of God's sovereignty here. David writes the Psalms. David lived about a thousand years prior to the time of Christ. And Jesus became aware of Psalm 41 at some point in time, reading on verse 9, he understood that this is going to apply to him someday. And here we are, 2,024 years or so after the time of Christ, and we get to read how all this fits together. This is the sovereignty of God. The enemies and false friends of David were plotting and planning for some very bad things. One, they hoped David would die. Two, they have slandered David's name 
And three, a close friend has betrayed David. Does that sound anything like what Jesus has gone through or is going through at this point in time? A lot of correlation. Now Jesus quotes verse 9 out of Psalm 41, and it says this, Even my close friend whom I have trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Oh, Judas is not an accident. He is part of the plan. Now, before we move to Peter's denial, there are two things spoken briefly that, we, that um, warrant our attention, and I want to draw your attention to that. So John chapter 13, verse 31, when he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify this, uh, the Son in himself, and God will glorify him at once meaning not some later legend or generation, but right away. God would be glorified in the cross. There is a New Testament scholar called uh, D.A. Carson, who's not a dead guy who lived a long time ago. He's still alive and well and writes and speaks and is phenomenal. He says this when he's making the connection about the cross of Christ and the glory of God. The supreme moment of divine disclosure... The greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. You see, it's only through the cross that people can enter into a relationship with God. It's only through the cross that true worship can occur. That's why we sing about the cross and talk about the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Almost each and every week we are talking about the cross of Christ. It is through the the cross that God is most clearly revealed. You can look at that cross up here and understand that to be an I love you statement. Not I love you as in the whole glob of people who are here, but you with your name on it. We've looked at that in John chapter 10. Jesus knows your name and he calls his sheep by name. God loves you and it's you that he's after. The path of glory though for Jesus looked like this. First the grave and then the, and then the glory. There is no glory in the cross if Jesus is not raised from the dead, ascended to the Father. So we have that. Now we understand as we take that information, Jesus is resurrected and he's ascended to the Father. And we go back and look at this. Glorify your son in the cross. We realize that was a package deal. The resurrection and the ascension have to be completed in order for the cross to be a a place of glory. And it has been. Therefore, the cross is a place of glory. And that pattern that Jesus set for us, first the grave, then the glory, applies to every Christian today. I have probably done 75 memorials in my lifetime. Most of those are for believers in Christ. I'd like to think all of them were. At least that's what I've been told. But it seems like that pattern is is always the same. Believer in Christ, love the Lord, serving God. And there's a sense in which, yeah, God is glorified in their lives. But for them to enjoy the eternal glory of God, it's always the same. First the grave, then the glory. Well, as soon as Judas was out of the room, it looks like Jesus starts sharing deep things. Not like any other portion of the gospel of John really lacked depth. Wow, we've seen some incredible things. There's layers of complexity. 
But he starts getting deep and intimate with his apostles as soon as Judas leaves. He covers a lot of topics in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. A lot of topics. Really only two. He begins with two as soon as Jesus, Judas leaves. We've seen glory. Now also I want to draw your attention to love. Look at uh, verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told you, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The command is new because the covenant is new. The old covenant was marked by 613 do's and don'ts and you tried to keep those and you had a sacrificial system in order to help you to become right with God but that was only temporary. Washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you're right with God for eternity. You're set free to love people and yes, sometimes to fumble and fail and fall. But you're set free to love God and to love people. I really like this phrase, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Jesus is the standard. No longer 613 things that we measure against, but Jesus is the standard, as I have loved you. Now, in its very immediate context, as we looked at last week, that probably includes the foot washing, or it probably is a reference to the foot washing. We know Jesus humbled himself, took the position of a Gentile slave in order to wash people that were less than him by position or rank. But Jesus did that anyway and then was glad to do that. It includes that, but I think it includes the entirety of what's about to happen. This whole package weekend. Love people as I have loved you. Jesus loved sacrificially. So you could just take out of that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, which I think every married man ought to memorize. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Why is that a model for us? Well, because in part, this is what Jesus said. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus died for you. Die for your wives, gentlemen. Go all out. Serve your wife. Love your wife. Sacrificially. Thank you. Now we have another uh, contrast here that John has built for us. No longer do we have two, obviously Peter and Judas, but now Jesus has added himself, and John made sure that we, hear, we got this. So with Jesus, we have a covenant maker, covenant keeper, or just a covenant maker we have with Jesus. And then we have a, with Peter, we have a covenant failure. And with Judas, there is a covenant betrayer. So glad we have a new command for a new covenant in this last movement focuses on Peter's denial. Pick it up with verse 36. Simon and Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Wondering why he can't go with. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the ro ro rooster crows, you will disown me 
three times. When Jesus tells Peter that he cannot go with him now, I think Jesus is specifically referring to the cross. It's as if Jesus says to Peter, you cannot go to the cross with me. I and I alone must bear the cross. Only Jesus could go to the cross and pay for our sins, pay the moral debt that we all had incurred and owed to God. Okay, back to that statement I made earlier. My aim is to show you this morning that Jesus can be trusted to save those he has chosen and to keep all he, have, he has saved. And John is just a brilliant writer. We have this tension of watching these two men wondering how is this going to resolve. Two men chosen by Jesus, one betrays and one denies. And yet there's something more for us with regard to Peter. Did you see what Jesus said to Peter, the second part of verse 36? Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. That's not anything like what he said to Judas. Verse 30, as soon as, uh, that's not it. I want this, uh, what do I want here? Second part of verse 27, there it is. Ah, looks like a new paragraph. It's still the same verse, verse 27. That's why I got thrown. Okay, so second part of verse 27. Jesus says to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. Fascinating that even Judas, Satan has entered him, we're, we're told in Scripture. I, I don't know the totality of what that means, but you notice Jesus still has charge over him. Go, Judas, go now. Go. Jesus is not afraid or intimidated at all. Here's this guy who personifies Satan. Go. You're in my command. You're in my charge, my timeline. Go. Go now. But he doesn't uh, retract or soften anything. What you're about to do, do it quickly. And what he says to Peter, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Jesus is so confident in the Father's plan that his words are different to Peter and to Judas. Also interesting that Peter offers to die for Judas. No. Jesus is the one who must die for Peter. I might have misspoke. Peter offers to die for Jesus. I don't know if I said Judas. You got it? Jesus, you're tracking. Okay, got it. And we know from John chapter 18 that uh, Peter did fail. That's just a matter of record. John 18 uh, has the trials of Jesus Christ. And Peter did fail, and sure enough, he heard the rooster crow. But also, John chapter 21 has the restoration of Peter. So Peter did deny. He did follow later. So after the denial, he followed in obedience. But we also know he followed uh, most likely... Uh, in crucifixion, definitely in martyrdom. And that was three decades following this conversation. Wow. There is so much rich, richness there, so many layers there. Let me try to wrap this together with just two simple ideas. 
If you are a Christian, please know that Jesus intends to keep those he saves, and he is able to keep all he saves. Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Are you ready to follow him? If you are not a Christian yet, please know that Jesus can be your Savior. Jesus has already made the first move. He has gone to the cross for you. And I believe God has brought you here this morning in order for you to hear about this. Are you ready to receive him today? Let's pray. Dear God, we are moved by what we have encountered this morning. Jesus chose 12, 11 to obey, one to, to betray. And that plan was good with Jesus. Wow. So Jesus planned the betrayal all along knew it was coming, wanted it to happen so that Scripture could be fulfilled and Jesus could go to the cross. And we are amazed. In our humble adoration, we say thank you. Thank you. And there's really not much more to say. For those of us who know Jesus Christ and we've been walking with him some number of, of years, perhaps, decades even, we commit again, not in the emotions of the moment, but in the reality that we have encountered. Jesus laid it all on the line for us. We want to do something sacrificial for him. Lord, that might mean for us that we give our time, our talent, our treasure, some aspect of who we are, what we have, what belongs to us. We recognize we want you to have it all, that we might bring glory to you. Perhaps not everyone in this room knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord yet. God, we thank you for this great plan, this amazingly unpredictable plan that we would have never seen coming for a thousand years. But here it is. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, and we are forever grateful. Lord Jesus Christ, if it's your need this morning, friends, you just pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you into my life to be my Savior, to be my Lord you're the one who saves me. I am the one who follows you as best as I can, stumbling at times, even failing. I am committed to following Jesus Christ for a lifetime. Our great and glorious God, we are not done with our worship service. We want to proclaim in song the gratitude that we have encountered, that we have experienced, I guess, as we have encountered your word. We are forever grateful. To you alone we bring our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.